0: Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back everyone to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you everyone for your feedback on Andrew Hall's episode last week, our superstar dietitian who talked to us about the latest in gut health and mood. The most common message I received was about everyone trying the 30-day challenge. Let me know how you went. Post your pictures in the Facebook group of some of your choices or if you found something that had more than seven ingredients in it. If you haven't listened to this episode yet, definitely pop it on your list for this week. Andrew has the amazing ability to take complex information and make it super simple. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Michael Weir. I love being a podcast host for so many different reasons, but most of all, it's for the people I meet along the road. Michael is a beautiful dad and a man whose heart is bigger than most. He left his full-time corporate gig to spend the rest of his career saving lives and helping others who are less fortunate than him. Michael took on the general manager role for Open Heart International, where he worked for 11 years. Open Heart International is an organisation that provides open heart surgery in developing countries. We spend the first half of the interview talking about this experience and how Michael came to so strongly believe that where you live shouldn't determine whether you live. In the second half of the interview, we discuss Michael's current role as the New South Wales General Manager of Lifeline Direct. He moved to Lismore right before the devastating floods. This was one of the worst 48 hours Lismore will ever have to face. The town had been hit by flooding before, but in 2022, a disastrous weather event like no other destroyed thousands of homes and shattered lives. Michael takes us through the first few hours and days and we talk about what occurred, the aftermath, and the incredible resilience of the people in the community. I had friends up there at the time, and I remember hours feeling like days, just waiting to hear if they were okay. It all happened so quickly and was beyond what anyone thought was possible. I want to acknowledge and send our love and support to anyone who was affected by the 2022 Lismore floods let me introduce you to Michael. Thank you, Michael, for joining us today.
1: G'day, Ali. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I love to start each podcast with a question around if there was an animal to describe you, what animal would that be and why?
1: It's funny. I asked my kids this question because I knew it was coming up and I said to them, what would you say to daddy about daddy? And there was all sorts of random ones that I don't know, I think it was just the kids wanted to pick their favourite animals. It wasn't necessarily something about me. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny how it, with kids, you know, where things, a simple question and where it goes to.
0: I know, it just opens up like massively. they would
1: be uh, like, Dad, you're a worm. <laughs> you're a unicorn, Dad. Why Why am I a unicorn? Uh, because I love unicorns and I love you. Uh, um, so, you know, there's some beautiful stuff in that. But if I shove all of that and go back to your question and go, what? What is the animal? I actually have to say a chicken. And the reason that I say a chicken is despite the fact that I love to ride my bike and I'm obviously not riding it as much as I I am and I'm a pretty skinny guy. I've probably skipped leg day for about 40 years of my life and so I have the most chicken-like legs going around and uh, my friends give me a hard time about it as well. So I'd say (laughs) a chook. Do
0: you know, I just put out to our audience the other day around like, if we're going to change this question, what should it be? And it was beautiful because a lot of people wrote back to me, please don't change it because we get to know the guest really quickly and they said (laughs) their sense of humour comes out. Like, you know, some people answer like, like with something funny and something more about this is how I've gotten to where I am. And it does really kind of highlight how we kind of see ourselves, doesn't it?
1: Yep, definitely.
0: I feel like we need a demonstration of the legs though. I know we're only audio, but I feel like there should be a leg shooting up to Uh, the
1: side. Let's just keep the the professionalism of the top half here of what you can see and, you know, the newsreader look below below the camera line. I think we all know what's happening with the shorts downstairs. (laughs)
0: And I know the beauty of Zoom right and Michael I'd love to talk we have quite an interesting story here today it's in a few different parts but I thought the best place for us to start would be back at the beginning like the beginning of your career where you started where you were working and then how that kind of led you through to your second part of your chapter.
1: Sure so I guess the first the first chapter of my work life would be a career in insurance and it's a strange place about how I ended up there, but it's also a quite a simple story as well. So growing up, there was two things in my life that I really remember as a kid wanting to be, and I would flip between the two. And one was an architect. And that was overarching. That was the big one. Always wanted to be an architect. Then I toyed around a little bit with being a pilot. I remember having all these signs on my bedroom door going, ah, pilot training in progress and all this kind of stuff that I I did. But I always wanted to be an architect. And we moved house. We are living in Sydney at the time. My family moved house and we lived quite close to what was still called a technology high school. And that was the early 90s and they had all this cutting edge, computer-aided design stuff. And Mom and dad said, well, why, if you're really keen to be an architect, why don't you go there? So we talked about it and I ended up changing high schools for the last two years of high school, year 11 and 12, to go specifically there to get some skills to further my interest in architecture and becoming an architect and did subjects around engin- physics and stuff and engineering. I actually realized that I hated it. So I spent this whole entire life up until that point drawing houses and thinking how cool it would be to build houses and um, realized that all of this computer drawing and engineering and stuff was, yeah, it just wasn't exciting me like I thought it was going to do. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. And all I knew was I'd got to the end of high school and I was sick of having my head in the books. Like, and, Mum and dad said, you know, you can't sit around doing nothing.
0: As much as we'd like to <laughs> as an 18-year-old. Well, we'd love to do that. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do?
1: And dad was actually working in insurance at the time. And he said, do you want to work in insurance? You can just get it, we'll get you a job. You can just start earning some money and work it out after that. And so I sort of, I left school. I had one week off and went to work for an insurance company. And so didn't do the whole schoolies thing, didn't do anything, left school. Before I'd even left school, I knew that was going to happen because I already had the job sorted out and had a week off and a week later I'm in full-time employment earning money. And there was parts of me that sort of hated it at first. Like all of my friends were off summer holidays, went to partying, went uh, went to schoolies and all the rest of it. And I was on the train going to North Sydney every day I was at the bottom of the rung filing paperwork, (laughs) plowing it through this and that and the other thing, wearing a suit and tie, and it kind of sucked until about three weeks later when the first paycheck came in. (laughs)
0: What is this?
1: Whoa! Well, well, look at all of this money. And you know, it wasn't a huge amount of money. Don't get me wrong. One hundred and twenty dollars. I am so rich. A, was, and there is so many stories, right, of people going that first paycheck is just like, oh my goodness, I've never had so much money in my life. And so there was an element of that. And you know, it was it was good work. I kind of grasped it. And kind of was wasn't. Difficult, it wasn't easy as well, but kind of enjoyed it. And the funny thing is, what was supposed to be a summer job turned into a 13 year career, and I had a Heap of fun, met a lot of great people. The company that I worked for originally was, was sold and it became um, CGU Insurance, which is one of the companies that are uh, owned by Insurance Australia Group. They own NRMA and all sorts of other companies around that, the trap.
0: And you were moving up the ranks, weren't you, during that time? Yeah,
1: I was. Obviously, that sort of fed a little bit of that, oh, my goodness, look at all this money coming in. And, you know, all of my friends, some of my friends are going to uni, Two Minute Noodles, all that stuff, driving Toyota, uh, sorry, Datsun 180Bs, and, you know, I had a brand new car because I had an employment and I could get a loan and all of this stuff. And, yeah, it's just funny, like, a, you know, what was a sort of bit of a sliding doors moment. I ended up in a career that I was genuinely enjoying, and this whole idea of going to uni just kept getting further and further and further behind. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had this thought that that's where I had to go. I had to go to uni and do something. But the deeper I got into my career and they just kept promoting me and I got more responsibility and I was a supervisor at 21 or 20 or something like that. I had people reporting to me that were twice my age and like –
0: It's hard to walk away from that, isn't it? Yeah, it
1: was definitely hard to walk away and, you know, really enjoyable and a lot of fun. So
0: what led to the big change then? When, when did the pivot come about?
1: So I think it was about 2006 2006 the global financial crisis and that was the I guess the tipping point of some things that were going on I had done some other things privately in my, my personal life and there was a few changes there that there was something that just wasn't sitting right and I was kind of thinking oh there's something else and I, but I just couldn't put my finger on it I didn't know nagging what it was and you know the better the devil you know than the devil you don't so I just kept Going and working, and I don't want anybody to think that CGU Insurance was a bad place to, to work by any stretch of the imagination. It was, it was really great. But there was a few little nagging things there that I just was like, oh, it's got to be something better or bigger for me. And so the GFC hit, quite a bit of change in the insurance industry. There was a big restructure, and you know I've been through a couple of restructures before, but. I usually came out the other side better off and I was got promotions out of it and it was a good opportunity kind of space for me. So I wasn't afraid of losing my job. But what ended up happening was there was five people doing a similar job to me and four of those people either were made redundant or moved on to other jobs in the organization. And it kind of felt like five people's job had been all rolled into me and to one person. Now, it'd be unfair to say that I just had five times this amount of work because that wasn't part of the restructure. But that's how it felt, and I think that was sort of the, the real tipping point for me to go, oh, hang on a second, there's got to be something else going on.
0: Plus you were meant to only be there for like <laughs> yes, six months. Yes.
1: And that was 13, <laughs> 13 years 13 later. Years later <laughs> there was a little gap in the middle there um, and I did go on a working holiday overseas for 12 months but yeah I've been <laughs> what was supposed to be a summer holiday summer job had turned into 13 years which was pretty crazy but yeah I just remember that day that and we'll, I guess we'll talk about the next chapter very shortly but I remember yeah making the decision to leave and the day of resignation and walking in in there and giving my boss my letter of notice. And he goes, oh my goodness, I was about to call you and have a conversation about, there's a job going in Tasmania as the state manager. And we were thinking it might be really good for you.
0: What went through your mind at that point? Were you just like, do I take my letter back? Hang on a second. Can I just walk back in the room again yeah, or were you done? Yeah,
1: I, <laughs> I mean, I've been to Tassie on holidays a couple of times, and it's a beautiful place. And for all your Tasmanian listeners, I don't want to disparage Tasmania at all, but I was like, could you have offered me Cairns or Darwin or something <laughs> like that? Um, Tassie seems really cold and a long way away. And again, a very much a sliding doors moment where you know, if that opportunity had have happened six months prior or 12 months prior, I probably would have gone to Tassie and I'm not sure that I ever would have made the transition to where I was and where I am today. So, you know, it's kind of fascinating how those little little one moments can can change a lot.
0: Yeah, and I was thinking when you said about the global financial crisis, how much that feels so f- long ago since we've had COVID, mm. you know. That used to be the thing that we spoke about that was kind of on a national scale, international scale that had really pivoted people, changed things, you know, and now it's COVID. That just feels so far away.
1: Yeah, it does. And my journey with CGU seems like a lifetime ago. It it really does. And it's funny, you see a couple of things on LinkedIn and it reminds you of what it was like. And I'm sure the industry has changed a huge amount since I left. But there are things from my career, there is no doubt who I am today and the successes that I've had in the next couple of chapters of my working life. They're all linked back to some of the things that I've learnt at CGU for sure.
0: So what did happen next for you? Did you know where you were going when you handed in your resignation or did you just hand it in, walk out and think, what now?
1: Yes, I had already got another job offer um, and so I'd probably been hunting for about 18 months from the time that I had made that decision that it was time to go to the point that I actually walked out the door. So, And the GFC had kind of happened in the middle of that um, Mm. as well that really – Cemented and confirmed that that's that I wanted to go. So yeah, so some things that happened in my private life. I've done a little bit of travelling, and I'd been to Cambodia on a trip with some some friends. We'd done a bit of fundraising. At home, we'd raised fifty thousand dollars, and we would built an extension in an orphanage in Siem Reap, in, in Cambodia.
0: You say that so casually. <laughs> we went on a holiday with our friends. We raised fifty thousand. Like that's just what? Hang on, <laughs> go back. Yeah, yeah.
1: So we'd, um, yeah, we we just we just done it. <laughs> we just did it. Like really? Yeah. So we, a lot of us had travelled around a bit. We knew each other through through a church that that I was attending at the time, and yeah, we decided that there was something that we all wanted to do. And so we just got off our butts and did it. And that was really great for me. And I have a lot of memories about that particular the trip living in one of the school buildings on the orphanage we lived there for, for three weeks obviously we didn't build the whole thing we paid so a whole of money and paid some um, Cambodians to construct the building far better than we could by the way so we'd come as part of that process and finished off and did some painting and, and, and some different things and, and sort of been part of the the project and you know that sort of confirmed to me that I really loved that kind of work the business development sort of that I'd been doing at CGU kind of lent itself into fundraising. The money that we were making had a purpose to it and the, this travel thing, and I just, you know, just loved travel. So that was, yeah, that really confirmed to me that it was, that's kind of what I wanted to do. And as luck would have it, I landed a job as general manager of Open Heart International. Uh, It wasn't even called Open Heart International at the time and that was part of the the, the journey that I went on with the organisation and I was the first full-time employee for the organisation.
0: Tell us about the organisation because not everyone will know or have heard of it. Yeah, so
1: amazing group of people and the story is that a group of medical professionals in their spare time had decided that they wanted to... Bridge the gap between healthcare in a developed country like Australia and the developing world. And in particular, they've been motivated around the lack of heart surgery options in Tonga in the Pacific and wanted to do something about that. And then we're trying to bring patients to Australia and that was really hard to do. And so they thought, well, why don't we go and do heart surgery in Tonga? Now, this was in the early mid 1980s. Open heart surgery was really still cutting edge and it absolutely still is cutting edge. But at that point in time, like it was, yeah, really quite amazing that it was being done in the developed countries, let alone developing countries. So I joined the organization. It had grown quite a bit, all been run by volunteers, the compliance, the strategy, running an organization, the strategy, the fundraising, all of that was kind of Look, a bit of a mess, to be honest. I don't think if anybody from OHI is listening and hears this, I don't think they would argue with me when I said it was all a bit of a mess. But where was the organisation going? There was great... Work being done by great people, but who was gluing that all in together? Yeah,
0: it's what you see often, isn't it, when you start these foundations or you start these big projects where it's done from the heart and it's passion. It's like people just get in and they do the work. It's like, this needs to happen. Let's just do it and we'll work the rest out later. And then comes a point that you're big enough that you're like, whoa, hang on a second. We might need to think about where we're going and the governance and the, you know, everything that sits behind this amazing work that's being done.
1: And it was at that stage where it was either grow it and really take it to the next level or it was going to naturally shrink because it couldn't Sustain the energy that it needed at that scale.
0: So they were going in and doing heart surgery yeah. on kids, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: They? So, so kids predominantly started with kids and then, and then some adults as well. And, you know, what started in Tonga then became Fiji, Vanuatu, right through the Pacific, Papua New Guinea, then into Asia. And then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. By the time I left, we we're doing programs in, the, in Africa as well. We started one in South America. Yeah. A phenomenal organization in, you know, the blood, sweat and tears of volunteers is its secret sauce <laughs> and, you know, how, how, it, how it operates. But yeah, the behind the scenes and the strategy, the fundraising, all the bits and pieces that glue it all together, the, the logistics of running heart surgery in a country that doesn't have heart surgery is just insane and it is very military precision-like and yeah, it was, it was an amazing 11 years that I spent there.
0: And are there certain stories that come to mind for you about that experience?
1: I was really privileged to travel quite a bit and be part of teams. You know, there's not too many people with a background like mine that say that they've watched heart surgery. And, you know, just, you know, for me you know, the, the size of a heart is roughly the size of your fist. And the tech that's involved in that is just fascinating. When you see, in stand in an operating theatre and you see all of the equipment and the people around that is required as soon as you stop this muscle from working. And, and that was just so fascinating for me. And there's something really, really exciting about... You know, on the, in the movies and you see like the flat line on the, the monitors when they're monitoring a heart rate, when the surgeons start the heart back up again and you see it just start flipping again, like there's just something amazing and powerful about the human body when that thing starts to, to go again. And for kids that, you know, I think it's one in 80 kids have some sort of heart defect and they're born with it and here in Australia, they just get fixed. But if you live in a country that doesn't have that sort of health system, they don't get fixed and you die. Like, you know, the whole concept of where you live shouldn't affect whether you live became really front and center and really important for me. And in Fiji, I remember meeting a family and and their daughter had just had heart surgery and she was a little bit older than my daughter and they shared the same name. And so that the, here I am, in Fiji, but my family's at home with all of the healthcare in the world. I don't have anything to worry about. And this family here with a daughter the same age and the same name as me, it's almost like that's me, right? That's the Fiji in me. And again, if it's the same in this, I guess it's this sliding doors kind of thing. Like the difference between me in Australia versus the Fiji and me and that family like it's just hugely different and how privileged we are and that sort of spurred me on and you know that family one of the lucky ones their daughter received heart surgery the stats say she'll probably go on and live a, a, a normal life and be absolutely fine but there's so many other kids across the developed world that don't get that opportunity.
0: And how did you personally deal with that? You know, how did you manage and cope with knowing that you were helping some because that's, you hold on to that, right? How did you hold space for all the other kids that couldn't come in?
1: Mm, I think for me personally, (laughs) one of the things that I was grateful of that I wasn't in that meeting to make those decisions. Mm. So, you know, what would happen is the local doctors would be finding patients all, all the time and putting them on a list. And then our cardiologist would go and review all of those and put up a short list. And then our team would fly in and they would have to make the decision on which ones were the most critical, which ones could possibly wait. Sadly, which ones had Their conditions were too complicated, and so we couldn't help with that. Um, You know, that team was literally playing God, so to speak, with some clear guidelines about what we had to do, the best use of the resources that we had, and the best use of the time that we were there. The reality is, if we were there and we could do 50 operations, there was always 51, 52, 53, 54. Like, there was always somebody that was going to miss out, and it was heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking i was really glad that i wasn't personally having to make some of those decisions but it was very motivating for me to work out to make sure that we could do 50 51 or 52 if we had the stretch and we could do it not 46 47 and leave something behind so that was very very motivating for me to go right let's push as hard as we can let's make sure that we get as much as we can. the heart valves that we need let's make sure that we get as many as we can for free and push those companies to donate as much as they can because it really really matters so that was really motivating for me but you know one of the things that i i learned is just some of the i guess the grace and the humility the patience and just the beautiful nature of people particularly in developing countries now whether that's in Asia whether that's in the Pacific you know it was just amazing and you know people would miss out and they'd just be so thank you for coming thank you so much for trying and you know that sense of appreciation you know sometimes disappears a little bit with, with expectation here in the developed world and you know that's There's a level of restoration in humanity that comes with that. You know, heart surgery in developing countries, everything doesn't have a happy ending. Sometimes there's adverse reactions, sometimes which the team would try and things didn't go the way that it should have. And, you know, to hear families go, Thank you for coming. Thank you for trying. I realize that this isn't going to have a happy ending, but we know that you've tried and you've made every effort to, to come. Yeah, it's just like it breaks your heart, but it restores some faith in humanity all at the same time. It was a wonderful, wonderful journey and organization. I still have a huge soft spot for them.
0: Yeah, and you said you were there for 11 years. That's a long stint in that kind of work.
1: I went there telling myself, I would give it three years.
0: Well, we know that translates to 42. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your timing everything. I know. I'll just go for a few months. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I said I would give it three years. At three years, I would review and I would go, at that point, I go, yep, I'm in for another two years and for five years. But, like, it was just such meaningful work, such beautiful people that I worked with professionally rewarding because we built a team you know there were so many things we restructured the organization we changed the name and rebranded the whole thing we built new programs we got out of just being heart surgery and built some other special surgical specialties as well they were multidisciplinary like it was amazing work amazing work all done out of a demountable building on the north shore of sydney
0: wow Oh, I just can't even begin to imagine that, you know, as you were talking, you sort of picture that there's this like offices and offices and people and people, you know, creating that with the, how far you're able to scale it and what you're able to do with it. And oh, just to think that you're out out of a demandable is crazy. And so, Michael, I guess the question that's coming up for me is why did you leave that organization? I can hear the passion in your voice and the amazing work that you're doing. What happened for there to be a shift?
1: I guess probably two parts of that, you know, 13 years is uh, 10, 13, 11, you know, whatever it is, is a long time in the same place. And I think culture and change and refreshing of of people is actually a good thing. You know, sometimes we talk about attrition in organisations or, or turnover as a bad thing. And it's actually there's reasons for a good amount of attrition because it brings in, in new ideas. And I, I kind of had started to get a few nagging thoughts that that I'd taken the organization as far as I possibly could. And it wasn't that I I was getting any roadblocks or negativity. You know, the, the people, the board, all the people around me were still very positive about what I was doing. But so there's definitely some thoughts with that. And so I guess... 2018, 19, starting to have a few of those, those thoughts k- kicked over the 10 year mark with Open Heart International and was, yeah, it just sort of had that some of those nagging thoughts that, you know, what was next? And if I didn't make a move, was I going to be entrenched there for another 10 years? And was that the right thing for the organization? And then this crazy thing came along that you might have heard of called COVID. And, <laughs> and that was a huge, change for everybody in in the world i think including me
0: and were they able to the first thought i have with that is were they able to still do any of their work
1: it shifted things dramatically so you know i remember saying to one of my colleagues it was australia day 2020 or just before that so january 2020 and uh i remember it was a friday afternoon and i said oh hey have you heard of this coronavirus thing that's been floating around and uh, my colleague Megan goes, oh yeah, there's something about that in Asia. And of course, we're constantly monitoring travel risk uh, as part of what we do. And, and we're going into developing countries, so there's all sorts of risk for our people. So we've got systems in place to manage and monitor all of that. So we were probably hearing about these things earlier than say the general public, it hadn't been on the news as much, but we'd sort of heard a few things. But I remember saying to her, oh, yeah, she'll be right. I'll see you Monday. We'll worry about it then. And, you know, three days later, like COVID was like the sky was falling in. And in particularly in Wuhan and, and, and China. And that's cascaded a whole heap of change for us it was pretty stressful, to be honest. I was the you know, sort of the chief of the organisation and trying to make these decisions about are we going or not going. We had, you know, five teams about to be deployed, hundreds of people about to go to Nepal, Papua New Guinea, like all over the place.
0: And save thousands of lives, right? Like how do you weigh that up? You know, are we putting these guys at risk? But if we don't go... At what cost?
1: Absolutely. So there was the cost of going, the cost of staying, then there's the financial impact on the organization, and of course, safety and our people obviously comes first. But, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars have been pre purchased. All of this travel, all of the logistics that go with that, and no understanding of what's happening with travel insurance. Like the travel insurance. Had no idea what was going on, and they just was saying, "Well, if you don't go, you're going to forfeit all of this." So, you know, there was that layer of risk, and yeah, it was really challenging to know what to do and what not to do. And for a time there, I felt that that was very much all on my shoulders. Everybody going, well, "What are we? Yeah. What are you going to? What are we doing? Are we making that decision or not doing? It? Who's making that decision? Are you making that decision?" And you know, there was a month there where it was just. So, so stressful. And thankfully, I had some good colleagues and a mentor that took some time with us. And, you know, we just sort of set up some decision frameworks about, okay, let's try and make this objective as possible. It's not an emotional decision based on what Michael thinks or shouldn't think. As an organization, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. When one of these things happen, we have to do this. And that was hugely beneficial for my well-being through that process and in the end, we we didn't go. I think one of those six deployments actually went and that was the first week of February and then everything shut down and I remember, I vividly remember that afternoon when um, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison shut the borders and I was like, oh my goodness, what does this actually mean for our organisation? Um, and, you know, fast forward a couple of years and we all realised that you can get on most of your life on Zoom and we all did work from home. It's really hard to do heart surgery in a work from home basis on Zoom. So, you know, there was a little bit of pivot. We are able to do some sort of training and and, and things that the organisation did as well to do that remotely. But the reality is most of that that work stopped. And I was there for about twelve months, the first twelve months of that COVID situation. And it really was it was a great opportunity at that point in time to do all the jobs that you wanted to do but never had the time to do. So, you know, for the first twelve months I spun it with it almost feel like I was spinning it with the staff. It's like, this is awesome. We can do all of that stuff that we <laughs> like all those things that Let's we wanted to do. Lens. Like we can do all of that stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, and at first I remember people like, oh, the borders will be shut for three years. And we we're like, come on, like that's that's never going to happen. That's crazy talk. And in the end, that was actually the, the the reality of it. So it has been tricky for Open Heart International. I, I won't lie. It's been two years since I, I, I left and it's been very, very tricky for them. I'm excited that I hear they're about to start travelling again in early 2023, which will be great.
0: That's so great. So what happened for you next? What was the next chapter of your life?
1: So... I guess having those thoughts about is, should I leave? Should I not leave in terms of have I been there too long or what's the next chapter? Then of course a lot of the fun had gone out of Open Heart International without all the travel and the way the organization was structured. That was, that was really tricky. And a dear family that is my wife's Brother, so my brother-in-law, he's a doctor. He'd moved to Northern New South Wales uh, to the Northern Rivers the year previous, and he said uh, we came up to see them on holidays. And while we're there on holidays, our kids are a little bit younger than their kids, and of course all the cousins are playing together and loving life. And they're like, "You guys should move up here. It's awesome. You'll you just you just love it up here." And we went, "Oh yeah, maybe I don't know. Sounds." Like a crazy idea, but who knows? And I, for some crazy reason, in seek, I was already looking for jobs and I just chucked into the preferences that I was interested in jobs in the Northern Rivers. And probably six weeks later, a a job came up with an organization that we'll talk about in a second that everybody in Australia probably knows about.
0: Well, everyone on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) does.
1: So uh, a job came up um, as a regional general manager. In the Northern Rivers for Lifeline. And I remember saying to my wife, hey, you know, when we were chatting about moving to the Northern Rivers, was that a bit of a joke or was that something that, you know, we were serious about? You know, we'd just built a house in Sydney, in the northwest of Sydney. It was our forever home. We'd built it as our forever home. It was less than a kilometre from the school that we picked out that our kids were going to go to. We had people all in the area. We're like, nah, we're never moving. This is absolutely the house for us and built it with all those little mod cons that you you do when you go, this is the forever house. Um, And I remember my wife saying, well, we'll never know if you don't apply for it, so you might as well apply for it. And so I did apply for it and started doing all of the stuff in recruitment. And all of a sudden, I was in an interview in, in Newcastle at one of the Lifeline offices and... I left there two weeks before Christmas and I rang my wife and I said, I think I'm going to get this job. And by the time I'd driven back to Sydney, the the recruitment company had said, hey, these guys really want you to come and work for them. And so, yes, that's shifted the the story into the next chapter for me and and it's been great. It really has been great.
0: This is a shout-out to all the teachers, parents and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely actions so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free Project Health Check on your school – please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. And so you're up in the Northern Rivers, which is where we had, we've just been through the Lismore floods, which was absolutely devastating on so many levels. And I know that's something that we said we would talk about here today around that experience because you were on the ground up there. Yeah
1: so we moved to lismore january 2021 and so the floods were february 2022 so so i'd been in town for a bit over 12 months we'd arrived here with no accommodation there's a housing crisis already we managed to find a short term rental there's a story all in that and some amazing people that helped us out and you know we loved the community like it was just a beautiful place to live and we were privileged to be in a financial position that allowed us to to, to buy a place, so we bought a, a place and a, we live about um, ten minutes out of the the town proper, in Lismore, um, and got stuck into to working for for Lismore in the the Northern Rivers and learning about mental health and wellbeing and suicide prevention. I didn't have a any background or expertise in in any of that, but the particular role was not so much about the specifics of the great work that Lifeline does, but again, about the organizational structure, financing, fundraising, stakeholder management, grants and that kind of thing. So yeah, I got busy doing Lifeline and February 28th, which is actually my wife's birthday. She still claims that we didn't celebrate her birthday that day, just insane. like. I've never experienced a cyclone before, I've never been in a, in a cyclone. I guess what happened then, um, and then the second flood is as close as it'll be.
0: And Michael, are you able to tell us a little bit about your experience in that 48 hours of the flooding?
1: I remember being at my brother-in-law's property on the Saturday Arvo, and you now we're just talking about some of the chatter around town. People are, oh, this, is, this is bad, this is bad, this is not looking good. And the week previous, there'd already been a whole heap of rain anyway. So the river was particularly high already. And the rain started rolling in. it was a Sunday. And Sunday lunchtime, we'd made a decision that it was time to prepare Lifeline and Lifeline's buildings and and the stuff that we've got around town to protect ourselves. And like the rain just kept coming and coming and coming. And so we assembled a few people to start what well, we call about lifting stuff. So anything that's on the ground floor, trying to bring it upstairs. And like Lismore is a town. There's people, I guess, people that have been around for a long period of time that are used to this kind of stuff. The town is actually pretty flood resilient. And you know, I remember going into town to our op shop downtown, which is probably at the lowest point in town that... So, if anything is going to happen, that's the one that gets hit first. And I remember thinking, wow, this is my first flood experience, but everyone's kind of organized here. Like everybody was downtown removing things out of their shops, preparing themselves, taking things upstairs if they could, sort of preparing themselves just in case. So, we did a whole. We took all of the stuff out of our, our op shop as much as we could, loaded it in the trucks. Then I went back to our, our office, which is on the other side of town and pulled everything upstairs, um, took it from downstairs and upstairs. And the downstairs part, if it floods, we kind of know that it's gonna have a minor impact on us. And I remember saying to one of our other staff, we're pulling out a few computer things and just going, oh, well, we'll take all this upstairs. And if it gets damaged upstairs, you know, we're really stuffed, ha, 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 this is a joke. And my boss, who's Newcastle based said, I was calling him and keeping him updated and he said, All of a sudden, there was a break in the weather. And I said to him, I think we're going to be okay here. Everything looks okay. And then I'm driving back home and I go up a hill and there's all these trucks and everything and cars parked on the side of the hill because all the car yards bring all of their cars off the lots and park them up the hill. And I think, oh, wow, like the town is so organized. We'd send all of our trucks to the depot on the other side of town that Lifeline has. And I'm thinking, we've done everything that we can. And maybe an hour and a half after that, I thought that everything was going to be fine. Everything was not fine. And the amount of water that came from the sky that night was just insane. Um, and, you know, for me, living on top of a hill, I've got to admit, I still slept reasonably well that night. I was getting emergency text messages that said, you know, for other people, it was time to evacuate in other low lying areas. But I slept okay. And
0: I woke up
1: at 5.36 and looked at my phone and looked at all the messages and went, oh, my goodness, this is quite possibly one of the worst things that this law is ever going to ever going to face. And so the next 24, 36 hours is is an absolute blur of, of what happened. And, you know, there is definitely a little bit of, you know, survivor's guilt and some of the, the ways that it's crazy, you know, the, the place where I live, there's a park nearby, which is where helicopters were dropping people that had been rescued. One of the evacuation centres was just up the road and I was up there in a private capacity and also in a lifeline capacity and doing what we could there. And this challenge of where you live and how that impacts you and some of the social determinants was just so in your face. You know, there was people there that got out of their houses with the clothes on their back and their dogs and the dogs were walking outside of the evacuation center to do what dogs need to do in the garden. And there was people living three streets away on their morning walk, taking their dog for a walk. And I'm not critical of the people taking their dog for a walk because stuff has got to happen. And I'm sure those people are doing everything that they could possibly do and helping out. But it was just this real chasm of of difference in people's experience. And I'm 10 minutes from town. And the Mm -hmm. difference between total carnage of your life and relatively unaffected 10 minutes and you know Jim's mowing turned up to mow my neighbor's lawn three days later and I was like hang on a second how can that be happening but then again like he's a small business operator he's got to keep operating his business and like for a second I was I wasn't judging but I was like that shouldn't be happening. And then I'm going, well, hang on, it kind of has to keep happening anyway. So, yeah, so that, that sort of dichotomy was really kind of quite challenging. And, you know, I, I, this isn't about me or, or your listeners going, my goodness, poor Michael, because he lives in Lismore, because that's absolutely there's thousands of people that are incredibly Worse off than me that we're fighting to, to help as best we can. It's, there's a refugee crisis that nobody's really talking about in Australia. Um, thousands and thousands of people, um, across the Northern rivers are living somewhere when they have no home or they don't know what's going on with their home at the moment. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is heartbreaking. And from a uh, slipping back into the, into the mental health and what lifeline, the space that lifeline does, you know, one of the things that's, you know, that's good. When people's wellbeing, is, when things are going well for them, it's about stability in their lives and housing is one of those things. So no wonder there is so much crisis in so many people's lives at the moment in the Northern Rivers. It's really tough.
0: And I think this is what's unspoken about. I know you and I, we've had a chat about this, is that often there's that first moment of crisis and everyone's like, in the moment and people respond very differently to crisis. Some people are straight up and in and helping and others need to step back for whatever reason. You know, I witnessed that a lot in any type Mm. of crisis, even just as a car crash. I remember once coming across a car crash and the two people in the car with me froze and two of us were straight into action. And it just is, like you don't know how you're going to respond until you're in the moment and you're faced with that kind of adversity, that level of adversity. But it's often not spoken about and the stories aren't told post-crisis.
1: Absolutely true. And yeah, you know, Lifeline was an organization in crisis at that point in time. And I think that's one of the key learnings that I've taken from this is, you know, Lifeline needs to think about some of its organizational locations and it's where it sets up business because when the community desperately needs us, we need to be there from a place of strength, not a place of, of weakness. So, you know, we had our own issues. We've, we've lost, we lost three of our op shop locations. Lifeline op shops are a huge amount of the way that Lifeline gets its revenue. So there was a huge impact on the amount of revenue coming into Lifeline locally. Our call center, was completely decimated. All of that stuff that I took from the bottom level and took up to the top, that didn't even stand a chance on the first floor. In fact, I've got a picture of a boat going across higher than my office on the first floor of the building. It was just the the amount of water that's, that's gone through there. An amazing story about how we, rigged up a Lifeline call center in two amazing caravans in our back car park. And the resilience of our crisis supporters is just phenomenal. I think it's fascinating that there's so many people calling from the Northern Rivers and around Australia calling Lifeline to speak to a crisis supporter. And it's quite likely that one of those calls will be answered by a crisis supporter sitting in a caravan in the backyard of our building in downtown Lismore. We've got two caravans there, a portaloo. It is literally rigged together, but we've made it work. And while well, we're rebuilding the actual office and the call center location. Which fingers crossed, we'll be back in, in, in January. So a month to go and we'll be back home in our building. But yes, the resilience of, of all of that, trying to rebuild our own organization and then tackle some of the work that we did in the community. For that as you said that instantaneous moment of crisis and what that means and yeah we set up what was called the lismore community distribution center on behalf of the lismore council at, at their request and set that up in seven days and with no huge process we didn't want to be, be bureaucratic no funding guarantee but we knew that somebody had to do this and you know probably At best count, it's at least $2 million worth of stuff from clothes to food to homewares was donated through Lifeline and we managed all of that and got that to the community. Over 50,000 individual visits over the four months that that was, was operating. And that was super challenging for our team. And people in crisis act in so many different ways and our team trying to hold that space well, our team was even in crisis themselves. You know, I think six or eight of our team in the Northern Rivers lost their houses themselves. So many of our own team was impacted. And so, if you imagine that level of people coming to the one place desperately looking for something and looking for an organization to help, and the organization itself doing the best that it can with the resources that it had, which totally smashed itself. And its people are in crisis as well. You know, it's, you, I look back on it and go, wow, I can't believe that it worked so well. That's not to say it was perfect. It was definitely not perfect, but it worked most of the time pretty well.
0: What do you think was the glue through that? Because like I can imagine there will be a few ingredients that are the reason why it worked. And yes, there's still going to be things that didn't work the way you said, yep. like you said, you know, it can't. But in crisis, it's like you do the best that mm. you can. What do you think your team brought to the table and the people in the community brought to the table to kind of get through those four yeah. months?
1: I think... It's funny, I look back on it and think about some of the logistics of Open Heart International and, you know, getting tons and tons of equipment to developing countries and the process for doing all of that. You know, when it came to some of those situations, I think that sort of clarity of mind and turning a chaos into a canvas and sort of a a to-do list and how that's going to work step by step by step and when that can happen, I think I learned, I, I was able to bring a whole heap of Expertise to the to, to the problem. I think where you know where crisis worked really well for us, it's pretty simple. It's around clarity of purpose. When everybody was galvanized around this one thing that was going on, it was just amazing. It was just so beautiful. And in those first couple of weeks, I just remember you know trucks turning up from nowhere that we hadn't even didn't even know were coming and trying to triage that and manage that and getting that stuff onto the floor. The volunteers just came out of nowhere. Like we had just, you know, I remember Optus just rang up and said, hey, we've got 30 people we just want to bring, to, can we help you? And it's like, yes, just come, just come. And they were coming from all over Northern New South Wales and Queensland to, to, to help out. It was just a, just one example of so many amazing things that that went on, but there was clarity around We're all going to do this and we're just going to get in and get it done. And, you know, as things went on and naturally all of that volunteer supply starts to dissipate, that spontaneous goodwill starts to disappear and the community is left to pick up the pieces, I, I guess, and, and, and it's more about the locals rather than people that are, that are coming in. And when I say that, I'm not critical of people not coming because people have their lives and they've got to get on and do things. And But, yeah, as as the fatigue comes in, the frustration comes in and the stresses come in and there's less people involved, that was when it just it started to get harder and harder and harder.
0: And reality sets in, doesn't it? It's like it goes from we need to survive this to... How are we going to live? You know, what does it look like? What, it, what now?
1: Yeah, I think the reality is for many of the thousands of people that are still displaced, it's the people that are, can least afford to get through the challenge that they've got. They're getting left behind further and further and further. They're the ones that need community, need government support. For whatever reason, the longer this goes, the more likely it is that people need more and more and more help um, because they're getting left further and further behind. And that's the part that really worries me as somebody that lives, lives in a beautiful town, but also, you know, as somebody that works for Lifeline and knows what's happening in the wellbeing space for many people around this, this region. Yeah, it's painful. There's a lot of people doing it really really tough.
0: And Michael this is not my question but I've heard people ask this and I'm going to throw it over to you. Mm. A lot of people say why are people living there? Why are (laughs) they still there?
1: It's an awesome question and it's probably a question that's existed for 150 plus years and the longer it goes in my personal opinion the harder it is to solve. So I guess the background of it is that Lismore started a bit as a bit of a logging town um, and the river was an incredible part of the distribution of all of those logging assets, floating logs down rivers and different things like that was sort of part of what was going on. And boats were the lifeblood of, of people coming into into the town. So the town existed around the river. There's some awesome stories from some of the Indigenous elders and First Nations people around and about, you know, and there's some jokes as well that go on, why are you building in our swimming pool and things like that. And one of the uncles here talks about that. And then he says, but we're just going to get on and we're going to do all this together. And it's not about one minute. It's about, I told you so you shouldn't have built there, but you know, there's such a lesson in there about, you know, how are we valuing the experience and the Intel of our first nations people that have been looking after this beautiful country that we live in for so long. But I'm kind of digressing back to your question about why do people live there? I think there is a question about if they don't live there, where are they going to live? There? There's people that have lived in South Lismore and North Lismore forever. That's where they grew up. It's where they they live. They've grown up. Their kids have grown up. It's not about a house. It's about a home and it's about a community. And you can't just pick all that up and move it because everything around a community is not just about the physical house that, that that exists. So, you know, you're talking about asking people to sever ties and just disappear somewhere. So there's that layer and then there's also a financial layer as well. The reality is that houses on the floodplain are significantly cheaper than houses elsewhere. So even if you're going to get some compensation through buybacks or things like that like is the money that you get out of that can you move to somewhere that's safe and that's a question that's really hugely difficult at the moment in the in the northern rivers
0: and i also you know it's so good to hear you say that as the answer and often what i say to people Two is why do we put so much pressure on floods? Like are they going to move somewhere where there's drought or fires? Why do we not ask the same question around that? You know, the drought that we've seen, the devastation around drought across this country has been huge. The locus, the like we've had some really big events that I think it's really unfair to just talk about floods because they are They don't come every year, year in and year out. And like you said, it's like the four walls. The physical building isn't why someone lives in a place.
1: It's absolutely true. And I think that the reality is wherever you sit on the climate debate, it doesn't really matter per se, is the fact that it's becoming challenging to live in some of the places where we have lived for a long period of time. And so there is a change of thinking that has to has to happen with that. There is no doubt that there's places in Australia where there is development and property development that has happened for decades that we're going to look back on and wish it hadn't happened.
0: And Michael, we've talked about a lot today. We're going to have to finish up the conversation. I guess this being the podcast challenges that change us. My question to you is when you look back on these big experiences and chapters of your life, how have they influenced who you are today?
1: For me personally, I sometimes it's difficult my work-life balance and I guess I've fallen into some careers and, and, and had some paths where purpose is very much ingrained and aligned with my work And so that naturally leaks into everything and identity. And sometimes that's quite dangerous and having, trying to have some boundaries on that. But I look at what I do in my work life. And I think that that is really, really important to me as a person and finding purpose in what I do in life. And When I hang up the boots, when I retire, when I sit back, you know, I want to know that I fought for people that couldn't fight for themselves. I want to be able to know that I left the planet better than when I started that I've contributed to and I've contributed to something that's bigger than just myself or bigger than my bank balance or or what I could do you know I hope that my kids look back on that and go yeah you know daddy did some really great stuff for for people that were hurting and and that they're, they're they're proud of what I do in my professional life you know raising family and, and and being being a dad to my family is is still absolutely number one priority that's that's who i am work and that professional professional drive is really important to me also and, and i think you know I, I sometimes find it interesting that people can segment their jobs so their personal lives can be completely separate and i think i've found In my life, well-being matters when it's sort of all encased in the one thing. I am one person, not a couple of different people. And the way that I can relate that is there's an episode in Seinfeld where George Costanza gets a little bit crazy because his worlds collide and there's bits of his worlds that don't necessarily shouldn't interact with each other start colliding. And that sends him a bit crazy. And you know, for me, it's about having one world, not multiple different worlds.
0: And one thing that I know to be true in that space is when you do find your passion and when you're do, when you really living into your values and really living into purpose, you can't separate it. You know, that's one of the things that we do a lot in the coaching world is like, let's find your purpose, let's find your passion, let's get you loving your job so much that you barely work a day in your life. But like you said, there's the other side of the coin. How do we make sure that we keep you fully pumped up, ready to go. Mm. You know, how do we keep you upright and <laughs> rearing with good well-being and, yep. you know, having your time with your family so that you can be brilliant in your space because when you're brilliant, the next people aligned from you are brilliant. And when they're brilliant, the next people are. And what that means for the people that are getting the help is massive and life-changing.
1: Absolutely. And it's a question that there's no final answer on that. There's no simple linear start and finish like that is a constant journey it's a constant evaluation i've got to keep reminding myself about my work-life balance and yeah evaluating and making sure that i've got at least some sort of rails in place otherwise you know you will end up in a place that's very difficult to be the best you can be for anyone
0: and I always think about like if you're cooking spaghetti bolognese and you have white sauce on the stove and you have the pasta boiling on the stove and you have the mince that you're cooking and you're adding the onion and the tomato, it's like different things need your attention at different times, but you can't ever take your eyes off the whole lot. And the way you decide what needs your attention is by having some sort of framework. And so when you're cooking, it's like a method and the ingredients that determine what needs your attention. In life, it's your values and what's important to you that helps determine what needs your attention at different times. Like my family is similar to yours, Michael. They are number one priority, but they don't get my attention all the time.
1: And that's okay.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think sometimes that's not spoken about enough.
1: I totally agree. And, and, Mm. you know, uh, as a father figure and as a dad, and and I guess, yeah, without going down the route of gender stereotypes, you know, I guess traditionally in households of the father figure and the breadwinner and all of that, there is sometimes in my life this competing pressure uh, about I really want to be there and be there for my kids and I also want to be great in my career because that actually fuels some of the things that we can do as a family and the lifestyle that we live and and what that does for my family as well and I, I would say that I'm probably no Robinson Crusoe here. I think that there's plenty of males out there that are continually challenged with that about being uh, a good breadwinner and a good dad, and trying to match those up. I don't have the answer on that either. I don't have any, you know, super good insights into all of that other than what I do is I'm constantly thinking about that. And I feel like that at least keeps me trying to balance both of those things.
0: And I think, too, just to add on to that, if, Now what we're seeing is the second person in the house is working as well. So I think before what happened was there was someone at home that could hold the fort and keep it ticking over, whereas now both people are out of the house often. So I think it's just that comes back to the communication piece and like who's doing what, are we where we want to be, what's dropping, what's not what are we doing well at and constantly reflecting on that because the ballpark changes, especially if you've got kids or your career is changing, you know, what you need now and what you need next year or in two years, and we've heard that throughout this episode, changes. Like you went from travelling around the world to being home, so what your family needed from you when you were travelling and what they need from you now when you're coming home at night is very different. you
1: know, and I think that there's lots of modern families. And, you know, I'm in a stage of life, my kids are seven, five, and three. So they are very much reliant on mum and dad. And we are blessed. We live in a, a household where there's two parents. And I know that there's plenty of people there that are juggling so many different things as well that, you know, we as a family are, are lucky in the position that that we're in. And, you know, my wife works part-time. So, you know, that gives her the ability to be able to invest in the things that is really important to her as well and and around our family. So you're right, like (laughs) challenging and, you know, balancing who's doing what at what time and trying to keep track of all of that in the modern family is, it's a crazy life sometimes. You know, the we've got to be here at four and we've got to switch cars because your car's got the car seats in it and my car doesn't. And if you're late... It's and, running a business,
0: and, I say. You're it, running a business. It is
1: absolutely <laughs> running a business. And I know <laughs> that, you know, when my wife is at work and I've got to pick up the kids or I've got to do something else and I'm still in work mode and I'm trying to juggle that and, you know, I'm so lucky. Like, to say, I've already organised the food for you. You just have to heat it all up and i 've gone and done all of these things and gone i couldn 't even do the one thing which was to, to turn on the rice cooker because <laughs> I, there's so many other things going on, but yeah you 're totally right, like the modern family life is chaotic and But we all make it work somehow.
0: And knowing what your North Stars are and what your pillars are is so important. Before we finish up, I just want to ask what's next on the cards for Lifeline for you? I mean, I I, I know the answer.
1: (laughs) You do know the answer Um, (laughs) because you're a big part of it, Ali. (laughs) So Lifeline, I don't think anybody would be surprised that there's more and more people reaching out to Lifeline than ever before. And that's that's really exciting and it's really great because I think it underscores help seeking and and, and people uh, having that on their radar. Um, but I guess the, the flip side of that is Lifeline having the capacity to respond. So one of the things that we're doing is uh, continuing to pop up new call centers and, and locations where people can volunteer to be part of the Lifeline family. Pretty excited that we're bringing one to Armidale in the near future, to your hometown, Ali. Um, and... Am I allowed to tell the listeners that you are confirmed and committed to being a crisis supporter? Hooray! She's she's nodding.
0: (laughs) Yes, I am.
1: So yeah, that's that's really exciting, and and we're gonna yeah get a cohort of people there, be able to answer calls in New England. We've got a few other locations that I've got my arms that we'll we'll bring to life in in the near future. So you know, part of the way that these centres is, is operated is of course there's funding that comes from op shops like what we talked about before but also for people that can get behind and, and donate um, as well and you know Ali's probably going to be a little bit shy about asking listeners to get behind and support so maybe I can do that on behalf of you Ali and you know if it costs us about $39 every time that we answer a phone call it costs us every time that we train a crisis supporter, even for someone like Ali that's got a huge background in this space, to go through our specific training and the process that takes about nine months before you get your full licence to be able to answer calls. It's it's a huge undertaking and one that people don't take lightly and costs quite a bit of money. So if there's interest from the listeners, newengland.lifeline.org.au is where you can go. To register your support to be a crisis supporter if you're local or you know throw a few bucks our way to to get the um, Armadale location up and running. And
0: of course, you can also DM me anyone in the Challenges at Changes Facebook group. If you're like, yes, I really do want to, if you're like me and you're not a detail person, even just going to the website might be like, where do I go? What do I do? Just DM me because we are absolutely getting onto this for 2023. So, Michael, I'd love to finish the podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh.
1: As a parent with three kids, I think there's always something that a kid comes home from school or from wherever and for me it's it's absolutely some of the things that my kids say straight from the what do they say straight from the mouths of babes the beautiful minds of children and what they immerse and how they process that and then how it comes back out to just Yeah, it's just a laugh a minute. It really is some of the things that come out of my kids, particularly my daughter. You know, she loves animals. She loves people. And then some of the things that she says is just, it's so funny so funny.
0: I love when they get their words mixed up. You know when they think they're saying a word but it's it's a completely different word. We've had some pearlers in there. Thank you so much Michael for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on and spending this time with us. We've Michael, heard so well. much and so many different chapters.
1: Oh, no, that's great. Uh, thank you so much for being kind to me as my first in my first podcast. Um it's been great and I know that we're going to hang out some more and yeah, I just hope your listeners find some sort of insight in in my story.
0: Every time I meet someone that is so generous with their time and their spirit, I'm reminded of how important volunteer work is in our communities. I believe we can all give something. It might be time, knowledge, finances, or handing out a coffee. Look around at the world. There are people living and surviving in all kinds of conditions and environments. And every single one of them has a story. Since meeting Michael and also his colleague, Rob Sams, who's the CEO of Lifeline, who we interviewed on episode 28 on what happens when you call Lifeline, I have signed up and am almost halfway through the Lifeline support crisis training. I'm super excited to be part of this journey and we're setting up a crisis support team in Armidale and we need five more volunteers. If you think this might be you, then jump on the link in the show notes and put in an application or DM me and I'm happy to talk you through the process. There is also a webinar you can join so that you know exactly what's involved and help you work out whether this is a right fit for you. I remember as a little girl calling Lifeline many many times and I would say over the last two decades I've constantly thought to myself why don't I be a Lifeline crisis support volunteer and then it always felt like it wasn't the right time or I didn't know if I where I was going to be in a couple of years. And it wasn't until I met both of these beautiful men that I realised the only thing holding me back was me. And so I'm really excited this year in 2023 to be helping them raise awareness and to be creating a team here locally where we will have a whole team of volunteers. So please reach out if this is you and this has resonated with you today.